0: Welcome to the Whoa Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm your host, John Hare.
1: And I'm Renee Hare.
0: Each week, we bring you a show talking about horses. And on this week's show, Renee, we have Dr. Robert Miller. A
1: very interesting fellow.
0: Dr. Miller was the uh, one of the first people to notice that if you imprinted a horse at birth, that that horse would remember that imprint. I don't know if that's a word. Imprinted training? If he, Yeah, he would remember that imprinting for the, his entire life. And it would be much easier to train him at a later date.
1: And even though he's been accused of mishandling foals in the past, I think now everybody uh, agrees with his...
0: Style of training and imprinting.
1: Right, right.
0: He's a great guy. He's written over 23, 23 books. He's writing number 24 now. He, if you remember, he wrote The Revolution in Horsemanship with uh, Rick Lamb. Mm-hmm. I have that book. And he's also done several videos on imprinting new foals.
1: And he's 90.
0: He's 90 years old. This interview goes a little bit long. I was a little bit like Peter Falk in Colombo. Every time we were just about out the door, I think <laughs> of a, another question and go, uh, Dr. Miller, what about... and he, One more thing. And he was very generous with his time. And uh, he just kept on talking and so we kept on recording. (laughs) And speaking of recording, this is one of the first Skype interviews that we've been able to do uh, together, Renee. It is. We both got to talk to Dr. Miller and that's thanks to the generosity of our listeners, Roberta and Robert, and they allowed us to get a A new microphone, so we actually have two microphones now. Oh, how exciting. I know. We could put you in one side and (laughs) me. No, we wouldn't do that to you. (laughs) We think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Dr. Miller. He talks about all kinds of things about horses and horsemanship and how you can improve the relationship with your horse. So here's Dr. Robert Miller on the Woe Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Robert Miller. Dr. Miller, welcome to the Woe Podcast. Thank you. You've kind of were the the inventor or the frontier man of imprint training in young foals. Could you explain to us a little bit about your theory of imprint training and how it improves horsemanship later in life?
2: Well, I discovered it in 1959, my third year of uh, veterinary practice, and tried it on my own foals. I had no illusion that I'd invented anything, (laughs) and time has proven that uh, certain nomadic tribes in North America and uh, South America, and a few individuals elsewhere had done it. I, I, logic told me that I wasn't the first person to stumble on this, mm-hmm. but uh, at the time, it was, I had not heard of it. In fact, I had been warned in both uh, my pre-veterinary training. I have a degree in animal husbandry and uh, from the University of uh, Arizona School of Agriculture, and my uh, doctorate from uh, Colorado State University. I've been warned not to uh, mess with newborn foals because of you'll cause all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. This is possible, but I find out that if they're handled properly, it's a myth. Subsequently, we're talking about uh, 60 years now, I've had experience with thousands of foals, and in the last few years, I've decided to make a statement I wouldn't have done before, uh, and that is that it's 100% effective. I've never wow. had a failure. Either one I've done the foal or it's been, on, been done under my supervision, it can be done wrong, and since they learn the wrong thing just as... Uh, Uh, swiftly, Mm -hmm. and as permanently as the right thing, it must be done correctly. It's not difficult. It's easy to do, but you have to follow the recipe. So uh, presently, uh, at 90 years of age, I'm riding a 31-year-old mule that I trained uh, at birth. Wow! I call her a little angel.
0: Let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Miller. When Renee and I watched the imprint training DVD that you made back in 2003, we watched it last night. Has much changed in the uh, the 14 years? Do you still do that step-by-step process?
2: The procedure is exactly the same. That was actually the, yeah, the one you're talking about is called Early Learning.
0: Yes, that's the one.
2: Yeah, that was my third video in which I... Uh, address the training of newborn foals. I've done three books and three videos. I currently only recommend one book and one video. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the one you're you're talking about is uh, the most recent uh, video and uh, I think it shows the method most completely. There's been no change in the procedure. However, since that video was produced I have learned from other people some advantages of imprint training that I was unaware of and I'm currently including that in my seminars
0: oh wow and so you travel around the country still giving seminars oh, constantly,
2: constantly. <laughs> we that's, all we all want to I, learn <laughs> that's why I'm glued to the desk at home <laughs> we're making airline reservations yeah. for several trips right now and
1: I've got to say, it was pretty impressive that you could lead that foal on the second or third day with a halter.
2: Yes, and that foal, that foal, that's the one I'm riding right now, a scooter. Wow. Yeah, she's 31, and uh, she's a blessing for a man my age because she's only 14 hands, easy to get on and off.
0: Right.
2: And. She's as close to bomb-proof as an equine can be. I I don't believe there's such a thing as a bomb-proof horse because uh, their defense is uh, flight, whatever, they're frightened. And if they're exposed to any stimulus that they've never been exposed to, Mm -hmm. uh, it frightens them. Uh, However, she's as close as they get. That's why I call her my little angel. I love to ride her
1: she's been around a long time and has seen a lot of stuff,
2: <laughs> yeah, and when that video was made, she'd only had one and one half hours of training oh, uh goodness. half an hour immediately after she was born, and at twenty four hours of age, I gave her another half hour now. I usually do more than that, but I was busy uh, in practice at the time mm-hmm. and uh, just didn't have time to, uh, uh, to do as much as I would like to have done with her. But I thought, well, this will be a good test. Right. So we made the, the video with her, and uh, all I can say is uh, she's just gotten better over the years, uh, certainly not worse.
0: You've been retired now from veterinary practice for was it thirty years now?
2: Thirty years, yes. Wow. September.
1: How many seminars do you do a year? Uh,
2: more much? than I should. <laughs> uh, more than I should, because uh, I like to, uh, for the benefit of the horses and the benefit of the people that work with horses, I uh, I like to share my knowledge. Uh, information, plus I learn a lot, Mm -hmm. and uh, I enjoy horse people, and so my wife and I, we don't turn down many invitations, (laughs) Uh, in fact, that's why I retired prematurely at age 60, I was hale and hearty, Uh, I never expected to retire that early, but I was was turning down so many teaching and lecture uh, invitations that I realized, and I wanted to write more books. I realized in order to do that, I, I, I'd have to eliminate practice.
0: You were, you also did, uh, several books about the revolution in horsemanship. I have the book you did with Rick Lamb, and then you did a, a, another book after that.
2: Yes. I did a sequel to that. Uh, Rick suggested the first one. Mm -hmm. We did it together. And, um, Uh, It was a time when it was still quite controversial and new, no longer true, it's very widely accepted now, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's all over the world. Starting in the Northwest United States by a a handful of uh, working cowboys, amazingly, that came out of that culture. Because the horsemanship in the cowboy culture has been uh, efficient, Mm -hmm. but uh, very brisk, very short, rather uh, stressful for the horse. And yet those people, uh, starting with Tom Dorrance and his disciples, came up with a system of horsemanship uh, that was probably not new, because there have always been gifted horsemen throughout uh, history. But it, this is because of our modern communication. Uh, for the first time, it's spread all over the world, and it continues to spread. Then I did a, a uh, sequel to it uh, called the Natural Horsemanship Explained, uh, mm-hmm. and the reason I did that was because I wanted to explain scientifically uh, why it works and how it works.
0: And what were, what are some of the science... Theories behind it.
2: Oh, it's, it's pretty complicated to explain. Is but it... the the reason it was not traditional, except certain primitive tribe that lived 24 hours a day with their horses, that stumbled on it. I've got definite mm-hmm. proof of three tribes in the uh, American Plains Indians, mm-hmm. uh, two tribes in the Canadian uh, Prairie, uh, one tribe in um, Argentina. Uh, plus a few individuals, uh, one family in Germany that uh, where it was very controversial, one family in uh, Colombia, South America, where, again, it was very controversial.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, why was it not accepted? Because we know that human babies have very limited learning ability, right. not none, but limited, and that their brain matures over a long period of time about 25 years in the case of the human mm-hmm. before optimum learning capacity is reached. And uh, it's it logical that a foal could learn so much so swiftly and so permanently w- within minutes of birth. But you have to understand some species are what we call altricial. Altricial means that the young are helpless at birth, mother can take care of them. Mm-hmm and their learning is progressive and very delayed. Now, that includes the human, the dog family, Uh the cat family, in bird, uh, where imprinting was first described, uh, in geese, uh, in uh, quail, in chickens. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Predatory species, the young, the lion, the tiger, the wolf, the human, is able to protect the baby. Mm And uh, these are all social species. But prey species, especially prey species, are precocial. That means that when they're born, the brain is fully developed, their learning capacity is at its maximum, and their retention is permanent. Now, why is that? That's evolution. That's how they kept wild horses, wild sheep, wild goats, wild deer alive in that as soon as they're born, they see their mom, she moves around them, and they're immediately programmed to follow her wherever she goes and as fast as she goes. And that's why a newborn foal, when shortly after, is able to keep up with mom and the herd at full speed. They know that's where survival is. So it's easily explained scientifically, right. but uh because our human babies are so helpless and their learning is so delayed uh it was not accepted uh that's changed. I said after thirty years of teaching imprint training. I doubt if I'll live long enough to see this accepted worldwide, but I was wrong. It's, it's The last 10 years have made a big difference. It's being accepted all over the world, and I no longer hear the constant criticism that I heard in the early years when uh, I was called by trainers, many trainers and many uh, PhD behaviorists on the faculty of universities. I was called a foal, a foal rapist. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: that's <laughs> a little harsh. harsh.
2: <laughs> and uh, it's it so <laughs> offensive to so many people to try to train a newborn foal. But if you do it right, uh, it's 100% effective. I, uh, I can say that with certainty now after the experience with thousands of foals and never having a bad result. Oh, now, right. other people have had bad results because – they didn't follow instructions, or they made up their own things, and that was the wrong thing to do. And that's happening less and less. I, I hear fewer complaints.
0: You know, in the recreational horse industry, there's a, a lot of people now that are getting into horses later in life, uh, and and once they get settled or their kids move away, they're they're getting into horses and. Because there they are there's a lot of amateur horsemen out there. What's important for them to know about the behavior of a horse that helps that may help make them safer around their horse?
2: Well, above all, in understanding horses. That I've done both a video and a book with that title, Understanding the Horse's Mind. Uh, in order to uh, uh, to understand them, you have to accept that the horse. Is a prey species, which in its wild state is serves as food for a predatory species, mm-hmm. mainly of the dog and cat family, but not exclusively, because I I saw a video just the other day of a crocodile taking down a zebra. Mm. Uh, so there's a there's a prey and a predator. And unlike many prey species that have protective uh, weapons like horns Mm -hmm. or the horn on the nose of a rhinoceros, the equine family, that includes zebras, onagers, uh, donkeys, uh, and horses, that family of animals, the only protection they have is flight, instantaneous flight when they're frightened. So they are exceptionally uh, aware of stimuli.
0: Mm-hmm. And when they sense
2: anything unfamiliar that has they have become desensitized to and are no longer afraid of, their instinct is flight away from it. And if flight is not possible because they're in a confined space or because they're on a halter or a rope, mm-hmm. then the alternative is fight. Strike, kick, bite. That may not save their life if a lion is, is jumped on them, Uh, But if it's a human, there's great danger to the human. Mm -hmm. So if we understand that and respect it and we learn how to act around horses, how not to trigger that flight response, then we're safer, the horse is happier, and uh, we have a much better relationship.
0: And then one of their characteristics is also that they're able to be desensitized to to things that they may have initially perceived as threats.
2: Absolutely. As long as it doesn't cause pain, horses can be desensitized, desensitized to any stimulus. The loudest sound, the most horrifying sight, the, the worst odor, mm-hmm. and the touch anywhere on their body with any sort of a thing As long as it doesn't cause pain, horses are quickly desensitized. Otherwise, they'd never stop running in the wild. (laughs) They'd be running all the time. But because they quickly desensitize, and that is part of the art of horsemanship, is how how to do that uh, without triggering the flight response. Because of that, horses were so useful to human beings, first of all in warfare, Cannon fire, people screaming, Mm -hmm. uh, and injury. They were so well-trained and desensitized to keep following their rider's uh, guide. Uh, Pulling heavy loads in big city traffic, noise of all Mm -hmm. kinds. Uh, You know, I'm old enough to remember when milk was delivered with horse and wagons, exclusively, and uh, junk wagons, and uh, fruit and vegetable carts that went around through this uh, town, selling uh, various products. And it's all kinds of noise going on. C- children playing and screaming and right. uh, cars going past them. Those horses, most of them, it didn't phase them one bit because they were exposed to it constantly. And it never hurt them.
0: Right.
1: Right. And we still see the carriage horses in New York City.
2: Yes, yeah. that's a good example. Right, I've seen right. them, the carriage horses in Central Park and mm-hmm. uh, going up and down through the noises. Crazy traffic. Noises. Yeah. Oh, my, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but the police, mounted police that's horses, right. right, in the heart of New York City. I saw a t- terrible traffic jam on one visit to New York and a mounted officer, uh, everybody blowing their horns, beeping <laughs> their horns, uh, hundreds of cars, uh, locked, gridlocked. And a, a mounted officer rode in quietly. The horse completely calm. And at an intersection, he started to direct the traffic oh, manually. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I just had, was fascinated with the horse. That is I amazing.
0: bet. <laughs> you spend most your seminars are are they on horsemanship in general, or are they imprinting, or is it a combination of both?
2: Well, what they're not on is horsemanship, English or Western. Uh, horsemanship in general. They're on specifically understanding why the horse responds as it does Mm -hmm. for good or for bad and how to avoid the bad and concentrate on the good. And of course, it's all expressed in this uh, 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 type of horsemanship that Tom Mm Dorrance introduced and that Pat Pirelli labeled natural horsemanship. I don't know what other name uh, to give it except I call it revolutionary horsemanship. (laughs) I was doing some of these things in my 20s before I graduated veterinary school Mm -hmm. and continued to do them with my own horses and mules after I became a veterinarian. And then when I heard about uh, uh, Ray Hunt, a disciple of Tom Dorns, doing seminars, I said, I know what this guy is doing. i got to go see him. Mm -hmm. So after a couple of years, I did. I went to a four-day clinic, and uh, during a break, I said to him, you keep referring to your teacher. Who is your teacher? He said, a man named Tom Dorrance. Well, I'd never heard of him, but I told my wife, I said, this thing is going to grow, and it's going to spread, and it's going to replace traditional horsemanship, and I'm going to do everything I can to help it. She said, you don't have time to clinics? She said, You're working seventy hours a week, sometimes more? Wow. I said, No. I said, That's I'm not gonna be a clinician. What I'm gonna do is explain scientifically why it
0: works. There you go.
2: And I did that because people were contacting me and asking frequently, what kind of tranquilizers uh right. is Pat Pirelli? <laughs> Uh, these other clinicians, what what are what kind of clini- uh, tranquilizer are they? Are they hypnotizing those horses? <laughs> and I, I realized what it required was a scientific explanation of the horse's mind. So uh, mission accomplished. Uh, we job. don't get those questions very very rarely anymore.
0: When you grew up with horses, what kind of horsemanship had you learned before you stumbled? Stumbled upon? No,
2: I didn't grow up with horses. Oh. I was 15 years old before I started working with horses professionally, and except for my two years in the Army uh, towards the end of World War II, I've worked every summer of my life with horses. And of course, once I became a veterinarian in 1956, every day of my life, mm-hmm. the first horses I worked with were actually draft horses tilling the fields, uh, hauling logs out of the forest. Uh, I did that as a teenager. After I got out of the Army, my first ranch job was as a wrangler for the Irvine Ranch uh, in Southern California, which is today a city with a university. But (laughs) back then, it was a 98,000-acre working cattle ranch, and I got my first glimpse. I lived in Arizona. But that was my first glimpse of traditional Californial horsemanship, and I was very impressed with it, but I didn't know how to do it. Uh, Over the years, I learned a lot. Uh, I spent all my summers uh, working for pack strings, uh, ranchers, uh, cattle ranches, uh, for the U.S. Forest Service, uh, until I graduated vet school. and. And it became an everyday thing, working with horses.
0: Is that where your desire to become a vet came about?
2: No, I was—I knew I wanted to work with animals. Mm-hmm. So when I, after the, the summer on the Irvine Ranch, I uh, went to the University of Arizona, which was in Tucson, where I lived, mm-hmm. uh, on the GI Bill, majoring in animal husbandry at the School of Agriculture, I didn't know what I was going to do with that degree. My folks didn't ranch or farm, but I knew I wanted to work with animals. Uh, One of my teachers in the freshman year was a veterinarian. Uh, He taught a course called Introductory Veterinary Science. It was a required course for animal husbandry majors. And one day he started reminiscing about his practice days. And that just set my mind on fire. Hey, I ought to consider that for a career. I could be working with animals professionally,
0: mm. and I
2: could earn enough to someday fulfill my my boyhood ambition, and that was to own a farm and work it with horses. <laughs> it <Nice. laughs> was uh, many years later that I finally got into vet school uh, because it was very competitive back then. The first year I applied, there were 60 students admitted at Colorado A and M University, mm-hmm. uh, and three and a half thousand applicants. Oh, wow. That was due to the GI Bill. Wow. But five years later, I had moved to Colorado with my bachelor's degree, became a resident of Colorado, and I was finally accepted. Oh, good.
0: You kind of drifted into, well, not drifted, but you liked mules, too. Where did that interest come Oh, I about? was going
1: to ask that, too. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you like more about riding mules?
2: Well, a lot of people ask me that. <laughs> and I explain I love horses, and I've learned since I was a boy. I've loved horses. I respect mules.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> it would require a long-handed explanation, but the greatest mule show in the world is bishop mule days held right just prior to memorial day every year in bishop california and after i've been going a couple of years i'd heard about it and was curious so my wife and i went and it just aroused my curiosity i went back a couple more times and finally decided uh that i was interested in mules and uh, a colleague of mine, doctor uh, who practiced uh, not too far from me mm-hmm. and had 15 mules, I asked him, what what made you so interested in mules? He said, well, you know, my folks own a cattle ranch in Colorado, and I go up there for branding every year. And I said, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: He said, well, one year, he says, all the horses, uh- had a problem, lame or something like that. And he says, I had to ride a mule. I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, once you ride a well-trained mule, he says, you don't want to ride a horse anymore. I said, that's ridiculous. He said, have you ever ridden a mule? I said, no. He said, then how do you know it's ridiculous? I said, well, common sense tells me if it were true, everybody would be riding mules. He said, I'm going to loan you a mule, and he says, you can have it for 11 months, and then I have to have it back for next mule days because I rope on it, and that mule will convert you to mules, and I said, I had five horses at the time, but nothing safe enough for my children to ride. They were either unbroke or just too hot. I said, is it safe for kids? He said, absolutely. You can put a five-year-old on it. Wow. Well, he got 11 months free board. <laughs> I rode that mule and tested him with everything everything I could test him on, up and down steep hillsides, crossing creeks and all kinds of things. I called him back in 30 days. I said, "Bob, he was Dr. Bob Bradley. Mm-hmm. He's still around. Wow. I said, "Bob, you converted me." but I know this is a very special mule. He says, yes, he is. I said, how do I get a mule like that? He says, I'll look for one for you. Well, I found a couple of mules, but they had little behavior quirks, and I knew that the only way I would have exactly what I want was to raise my own mules. Mm -hmm. So I had two good quarter mares, and I bred them to a jack I had selected but never seen, but I was impressed with his offspring in Northern California. And uh, one of them became a Hall of Fame mule and the only mule in history ever to, invited to jump at, at an Olympics. Oh, wow. And my wife named it George S. Jean. That's spelled with two S's. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <I get it. laughs> And uh, it was so we've had both <laughs> mules and horses ever since.
1: Now, I have to ask this. Does a horse brain and a mule brain work pretty much the same?
2: Except for the uh, donkey factor, mules anatomically, they'll look like more like one parent than the other. Mm-hmm. Physiologically, they'll be more like one parent than the other. That's why... Most mules can withstand heat and stress better than horses can. It's because of the donkey, because the donkey is heat resistant. Why mules are more at home on very rough terrain, because the horse evolved on uh, flat grasslands, and the mule evolved, in, uh, the, the uh, donkey evolved in steep, rocky terrain. So, you, what you want in a, in a jack when you're producing mules is a lack of prepotency. I'm the only one you, you I've ever heard say this. Uh, prepotency is the ability to transmit your, your uh, physical and mental characteristics to your offspring. Now, in stallions, what we want is prepotency. Right. When selecting a stallion, no matter how good your mare is, you try to select a prepotent, better stallion. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just the opposite. In breeding mules, you want the mare to come through, and all you want is the hybrid vigor out of mm. the jackass.
0: Very clever. And so
2: uh, that's how I selected my jack. He let the mare come through, uh, and uh, that's how we produce some great mules. So they're good We've looking. Owned some wonderful mules.
0: <laughs> in doing some research for the show, I I noticed that. Uh, you're a prolific writer, and you've written several books on about your veterinary practice, about the uh, We Treat Aardvarks. And-
2: well, actually, that book was retitled. It was originally titled Most of My Patients Are Animals, uh, but Amazon, when it was re republished as a paperback, Amazon insisted, because I'd made some changes in the book, I'd also have to change the title. So I changed it to, yes, we treat aardvark. <laughs> how,
0: did, how were you able to fit the, your book writing into all the the <laughs> ma- amazing things that you've done over your career?
2: Well, it, everybody has passions to do certain things. I don't play golf or, or play cars. But I love to write. Uh, I'm a mathemat- mathematical moron, but I love to write. <laughs> uh, I'm still actively writing. I'm working on book number 24 wow. right now. I love to read as well as write, and I've been that way since
0: I was a kid. What's book number 24 about? Uh, about a
2: controversial subject. Horsemanship in general, as because of the revolution in horsemanship, Uh, horsemanship has improved tremendously since the late 20th century. And it's spread over the United States and now all over the world. And that's a wonderful thing, except in one area. We are starting colts younger and younger every year and working them harder and harder and breaking them down prematurely more and more. It's the leading mm-hmm. cause of lameness. When I got out of vet school, the only fraternities was in horse racing, and seven out of ten of those horses had permanent damage yeah. because they were started so young. It didn't necessarily render them unsound where they couldn't be used for anything, but they had problems, which shortened their lifespan. Mm-hmm. Now we have faturities, racing faturities. We have uh, uh, raining faturities, right. cutting faturities, bow racing faturities. We're breaking horses younger and younger and breaking them down prematurely, and money is behind it. Mm-hmm. The trainers, the breeders, it's more profitable to get those horses as early as possible and move them out and who suffers? The horse suffers, mm-hmm. because five, seven, eight years of age, uh, they're breaking down. They're, yeah. uh, they're not no longer sound, and the people who buy them are suffering.
0: In addition to the futurities, the breeding programs are, are generally trying to breed for one specific thing, and, the, and it's kind of messing with the genetics of the of the body of the horse. Yes, you're
2: absolutely right, and very few people are aware of that, and I've not seen that mentioned in print. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is this, and I haven't seen this said or printed elsewhere, but I've been aware of it, especially in the last few years. We are breeding horses today with agility and speed Far exceeding what nature intended. Mm-hmm. If you look at today's raining and cutting horses, for example, and watch their movements, and then look at films made 40 and 50 years ago right. and see the profound difference, and it's not the training, it's the breeding. We have bred for that more than nature intended to keep the horse alive as a species, mm-hmm. natural selection. Sounds- mm-hmm. We've used artificial selection. And so we're putting greater stress than ever on their legs. Right. Mm-hmm. And starting them younger compounds the problem. When I was, uh, came out of vet school, the term colt, C-O-L-T, mm-hmm. usually meant a four or five-year-old.
1: Right. Well,
2: Today, right. it's two years of age,
1: One or two.
2: sometimes yeah. 22 months, and I've even seen horses started for competitive training as young as 18 months, which is insane. Yeah. It's not fair to the horse. The only people who profit by starting horses too young and working them excessively hard are the veterinarian and the drug company. Right. Oh, wow. yeah. Everybody else gets hurt. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm glad you're writing a book about it because right. you're you're so well respected that perhaps people will start listening and and maybe there'll be some changes that are made.
2: I appreciate your sympathy for that <laughs> for that subject. I know it's controversial, I know it will anger uh a lot of trainers and a lot of breeders. But I like to think of the horse first Right, That's
0: right As we kind of wind this thing up We like to give our listeners Some sound advice that they can use To take to their with their relationship with their horse That will help them improve that relationship Can you give us uh, some words of wisdom in that area?
2: Well, I've done eight videos I'm going to recommend one Okay And that is understanding the horse's mind Okay And I've done 23 books, and I'm going to recommend, well, maybe two. One of them is Understanding Horses. Mm -hmm. And the other one is, if you're a breeder, is the video Early Learning about training newborn foals. If you're not a breeder, you don't need that book. It may seem versatile that the same guy, who is the world's leading advocate of training horses early when they're two minutes of age, (laughs) is preaching don't work your horses too hard at too young an age. (laughs) I have never started one of my own colts under four years of age and all of them except one went into their 20s. I'm riding a 31-year-old now. Uh, I've had Several of them go into the 30s and still rideable and still sound. That's great. The one exception was the first mule I raised. Because it was a mule and because I didn't know any better, I said, well, mules are so tough, I guess I can start this one as a two-year-old. And I did. And she broke down before she was 20. Hmm. We kept her till she died of old age at 28. I feel guilty to this day for not giving her another year yeah. like I did my horses,
0: well, that brings up a good question though when you do, so you do the imprinting and the the early learning d v d we saw that you did it immediately after birth and then within twenty four hours you had done a couple of short sessions. then do mm-hmm. you do those continue with those short sessions or do you then leave the horse alone. Well, yes,
2: but not not on a daily basis. Okay. But uh, but at as intervals, as often as I had time before, mm-hmm. picking up the feet, cleaning the feet, haltering them, leading them around. You see, There's so much training that can be done from the ground right. before you start working the horse. Now, I will say that just so people don't get confused. Mm-hmm. I do get on them at, at two years of age. By that time, they're so gentle and so broke, and they, they turn in every direction, and I can do any kind of veterinary procedure on them, and as mm-hmm. long as it doesn't cause pain, they'll stand for it. Uh, I broke them to saddle, broke them to all kinds of noises and uh, various objects, and then I get up on their back, and I just sit there for a few minutes, right. and I do that about four or five times, then they're done. God. They will not forget. Horses never forget. And then uh, when two years later, when I'm ready to ride riding them, I just get on them and start riding.
0: Well, this has been great fun, Dr. Miller. If <laughs> if people want to find out more about Dr. Robert Miller, where can we send our listeners?
2: I'll give you my website.
0: That'd be perfect.
2: Okay, it's small letters. Okay. Robert M. Miller. Don't leave out the middle M. Okay, Because there's lots of Robert Miller around, <laughs> including uh, uh, one horse rider that taught me a lot, but he's not related. <laughs> Robert M. Miller dot com.
0: Excellent.
2: And that has all kinds of information and, on it.
0: And I'll put that in the show notes. I did have one uh, side question to answer. I'm not sure this okay. is for the, for the show or not, but I've been reading some of the old time vet books uh, that tell stories that the veterinarians do. One of them was by Ben K. Green and it's called Horse Trading. And he just reminded me of you as I was reading this book. And and I was wondering if you were familiar with those books.
2: Yeah, when I decided to be a veterinarian, I went to the library and I found two books uh, written by veterinarians. One was by Horace Hayes, the British uh, cavalry veterinarian. Mm-hmm. And the other was by, um, I'm just blanked out right now, the, the guy from um, Ohio, a very famous horse trader. I, I just can't think of his name right now. A Senior moment. <laughs> uh, You're
1: allowed. But they influ-
2: that's the reason in my 20s I went on uh, following what they recommended and became such a supporter of uh, the, uh, the revolution in horsemanship once it became established. It's because of those two books influenced me so greatly. And I knew that they, what they were teaching was honest since the books written by the british veterinarian popular harriet uh, all creatures great by james right. harriet yeah. yeah which is not his real name oh. <laughs> and he b- became a personal friend we c- oh. corresponded regularly for for 20 years we only met once but we corresponded we both were habitual writers <laughs> addictive writers <laughs> Since his book was published, many veterinarians, uh, more books coming out all the time, and I, I, nobody enjoys reading them more than I do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. And when you were riding horses a lot, did you did you have a particular discipline that you liked to ride?
2: Well, I've been uh, yes a a Western horseman, but except for some halter classes and Uh both horses and mules. I forgot about calf roping. I was I had a passion for calf roping in my twenties. Okay. I said I'd rather rope calves than eat.
1: <laughs>
2: my wife, incidentally, is still showing in her eighties and oh, very wow. successfully, uh, but not me. Uh, I just ride. I just love to ride in the hills and yeah. uh, just for the scenery, be close to nature. And uh, relate with my, with my horse or or
0: mule, whichever I'm riding. And do you have some good places to ride down south?
2: Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So we live in the uh, Santa Monica Mountain Range, and we uh, live in a dead end canyon. We've got uh, a big ranch right next to us, and they're, the owners are personal friends of ours. So we have lots of trails to ride.
0: Oh, good, that's very good. Well, we we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. We know you've got a lot of stuff to do to get ready for your summer. All your summer summers. summer o travel.
2: <laughs> That's what I'm doing. I'm working on my desk right now.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Wolf Podcast, Dr. Miller.
2: And let me thank you for your interest in these subjects, which are such passions of mine. More more humane and more effective methods of horsemanship, and, and say a safer method for for the owner.
1: For everyone.
0: Yeah. And it's because of you that we that it, our passion has grown about this subject so much too, because well, we've thank learned you. so much from your book.
2: While I'm talking about safer horsemanship, I'm going to plug the least popular thing I've done. I did a video called Safer Horsemanship, and it was because the young lady that replaced me when I retired from my large group practice only lasted a few weeks. Uh She was uh, crippled permanently, uh, taking the temperature on a horse because she didn't stand in a proper place, and she had been raised with horses and worked around horses all her life, and that's I decided to make a video on safer horsemanship because, uh, as I told you, since the age of 15, I spent every summer working with horses, except when I was in the Army, and I spent, since I became a veterinarian at age 30, every day of my life working with horses. And in all that time, only one horse ever put me in the hospital, and that was a 20-day old fool that ran into me at top speed and knocked me flat on my back, okay. ruptured the cruciate ligament in my knee. I was lucky to some degree because I had some close calls, but mostly because I adhere to certain principles I call defensive horsemanship. Mm-hmm. And that is always stand where it's safe, safer. There's only two places safe to work around horses, very far away
0: <laughs> or
2: very, Very close. Very
0: close. <laughs> nothing in between
2: (laughs) that video is not very popular but I've had four people come up to me at expos and uh, things I'm doing today and come up and say to me your video saved my life (laughs) (laughs) so I'm going to finish with that a
0: perfect note to finish on Dr. Miller
2: thank you very much
0: that to do it for this show. Thanks to Dr. Miller for sharing his time on the Well podcast and talking about his imprint training. That was very cool, wasn't it? It was
1: very cool, and John, I think I'm going to have to go ride a mule. I huh? I can't imagine anything being more fun to ride than a horse. I have to I have to see what this is all about.
0: He he really raved about mules.
1: He really did. He likes them very much.
0: We're going to have to give it a go.
1: What if we love it?
0: We can rent a mule.
1: (laughs) We have nowhere to put
0: one. (laughs) Isn't that the saying? You got beaten like a rented mule or something? Oh,
1: I don't know. But we'll have to get one in a color we don't have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Red? No, no red. No red red mules. (laughs) No, we're not getting a mule. But Uh, we would like to ride one. Yeah, Yeah. that'd be fun. See what they're like. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. That's right. Yes. And it was a very fun interview. We'd like to thank a listener who's since come to help us on the well podcast quite a bit. Robin Kane helped set up this interview with Dr. Miller. And she did a fine job, got everything worked out. The interview went so much more smoothly. We really want to thank her for her help. And you can help the show too. You can check out our Patreon page. We've been doing the well podcast now for five years. There's over 150 episodes. We've chronicled many of our adventures on video, too, so we have a YouTube channel. And if you'd like to help support the Woe Podcast, just check out our Patreon page. If you want to help out, just go to woepodcast.com. There's a big orange Patreon button at the top. Click there, and it'll take you right to our Patreon page, and we would appreciate your support.
1: And we would then be happy to post a photo of you and your best equine friend on our sponsor page,
0: Yes, we'd love to fill up that page with pictures of people and horses who support the Woe Podcast.
1: That's right. Now, you can find the Woe Podcast at Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play. And our most recent provider is iHeartRadio.
0: Yes, we just got listed on iHeartRadio. That's
1: a big name. That is. We'll be famous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right.
1: But it's exciting. It is. Yeah.
0: Just more places that you can find us. And we also share stuff on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can just look for Woe well Podcast. We're there. And we'd love to hear from you. If you've got ideas or suggestions on the show, you can email me at john at woepodcast.com. It's just that simple, and I'd love hearing from you. Once again, thanks for listening to the show and sharing our podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.
1: And until next time, go have some fun with your horses.
0: Bye-bye.